Um, <laughs> let's uh. Oh. <laughs> Surviving creativity is back. Hey, you guys have sent in questions. We should. It, oh, do we well, have questions. Yeah. That's that's one of the new things that we're gonna do. Right, is we're gonna take user questions. So you can you can tweet at us at Surviving Show or hashtag Surviving Creativity. Uh, any questions that you have, and we'll yeah. uh, every week we'll do a little segment, and answer some questions. I got some. Do you got some, Scott? I do. I have one here. It says, "Hey guys, been improving my craft for two years now." Question. What's the point of cartooning now that we're in the end times? And you know, <laughs> I that's not, it's so dark. No, that's not. It's not a real question. I made that up. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> This is a good question, actually. This is from Ryan Fryant, and he asks, when do you know it's time to walk away from a project? Brad Geiger at some point decided that Greystone Inn wasn't working out. That's true. Thanks for listening. Uh, You you ended the question as if there was more to the question. (laughs) (laughs) I I think Brad should take that because you you, you made a decision with Greystone, right, Brad? Oh, yeah. This has become a topic that I've kind of become fascinated with. I think we need to be more open to the idea of ending a project. At some point, we have to admit that this thing that, that we're working on just isn't working. We become gamblers. It's going to hit next year. It's going to hit next month. This is going to be it. This is the year of Brad. And it's not. And we have to open ourselves up to the fact that it's okay to to stop doing this. It doesn't mean that we've failed. It doesn't mean that we did a bad comic. All it means is that we're going to try something else and, and use what we learned from those previous couple of years or however many years you put into it into a new thing. And by the way, if this new thing doesn't work, you can always go back to the first thing or you can go to your third thing. And I think the definition of success isn't doing one thing 10, 20, 30, 40 years necessarily. It might be looking back on a creative career where you did a whole bunch of smaller projects and you took what worked from each one of those and built the next thing to be bigger and better. And that's what I think is being missed in the conversation today. We're, we're, we have so many people yeah. looking at the longevity of one project. Brad, do you think it comes from a misguided uh, belief that... There's one project that's going to get you discovered. Yes. I think that's an American belief. And that you have to find it and hone it. I was going to say this applies not just to comics. Any endeavor, creative or otherwise, at some point there's is a beginning, a middle, and an end to stuff. And the end of the thing might be the day you die, and that's fine, but there's nothing wrong with wrapping something up. Yeah. 
Yeah, we really like the HBO show Vice Principals. I just discovered the second season is going to be the final season. And my first thought was, oh, I guess ratings weren't good. But it could also be that they just wanted to do two seasons. Yeah. And, you know, you see this a lot in British television. I think in American television, the networks will go, well, this is successful. Stretch it. It's the whole lost thing, right? Yeah. But in Britain, they'll do in the UK, they'll do two or three seasons and that's it. Or even Um, one or two. And just yeah, call one it or two series. The Office is a great example of that. Those two seasons of The Office hold up really, really great. Having since watched the NBC's The Office, yeah, there, there was a greater quantity and it hit a really sweet spot right there in the middle. But then you've got those last two or three seasons where it really struggles. Well, I think the American version of The Office also suffered from the writer's strike. It never recovered from that. A lot of shows did. I mean, there look, there are a couple reasons to end a project. Uh, in any field. Yeah, back to the heart of the question, right? Which is when do, when do you know, how do you know when to end a project? I don't know the context in which he's asking, but... Well, I don't think it matters. That's what I'm saying. Even beyond comics, right. there's, you know, you can you can feel it sometimes. There's a great movie uh, with Michael Douglas and Robert Downey Jr. actually and Tobey Maguire called Wonder Boys uh, that's based off a novel and it's about a college professor and novelist. He's had one successful novel. I think he's writing his second, which is a common trope in movies about writers. But at one point, his novel is just growing and growing and growing. And one of his students reads it and she says, you're not making any choices. It's just growing and growing and growing. He goes, he just, I can't stop writing it. And then at one point there's a car accident and he had the manuscript in the car and it blows into the river. And he's like, let it go. Just let it go. Like it took that for him to decide he had to stop. You know, you can beat your head against the wall trying to make something work. And someone needs to Sean Connery you and say, Indy, let it go, you know. <laughs> well, Scott, we, you and I both know people that have been working for a long time on the same comic that just isn't getting there. And you want to grab them by the shoulders and say, do something else. Stop it. This, this isn't working. You know, if it's making you happy to make it, then keep making it, even if no one else is reading it. But if it's t- clearly torturing you, that you keep trying and trying and trying and it's not getting the traction that you want. So you're just going to start at issue one and reboot it again. What you said is absolutely correct. If it makes you happy to do it, then do it. That is officially a hobby. Uh, being a hobbyist is fantastic. It's great. There's, there's honor to it. It's wonderful. But don't expect it to be something that's going to bring in significant amounts of money and be a business success and all of that. That's what I was going to say is for me, this question, you know, you guys are are approaching it from a very creative perspective, which which I think is super important. But I feel like you can also come after it and should 50 percent of your decision whether or not to end something should be from a practical standpoint. First and foremost, can you afford to do it? Can you afford to dedicate your time to this procedure. And I'm, and I'm not talking about, can you financially afford to do it necessarily? Because there are some cases in which it's like, I want to keep doing this thing, but I can't, I cannot afford to do this. I think that a big portion in creative endeavors, be they comic or otherwise, is deciding whether or not you can devote the time and the energy to the pursuit you know, where are you at in the project? Is it worth it? Is there an end in sight? A good example is some buddies of mine just finished uh, making this film and it got released called uh, Dave Made a Maze. And it's great and you can go get it, etc. They took six years to make this movie. 
But after, you know, now that it's out, it's done. Like there's an end to the project. And in the time in between, they deemed that their time was worthy of making this project. During the process, somebody had to go, yeah, let's keep doing this. Yes, this is worth it. Right. You know, yes, we're getting something out of it. I've been noticing more and more lately a lot of podcasts and YouTube folks and streamers, they're getting more nimble. They have some kind of internal threshold where they know whether or not the thing that they've started doing is going to hit. And if it's not, they find a way to wrap it up. They don't, they don't leave it. That used to be a thing where people just kind of abandoned stuff. Now people are finding a way to either do what we did, which is take some time, reassess. How do we do this? Come back do it right. That's one way to go. And then another way that I'm seeing right now is people will get into something and then they'll just wrap it up. They'll go, okay, this is my, this is my last episode of this thing finding the logistical standpoint of can it meet certain objective thresholds and then finding the creative, the subjective aspects of, is this fulfilling to me? You know, how does it make me feel? Is this my pursuit in life? Those kind of things. I think that once you put those two things together for 99% of people, it becomes very clear whether or not they should can continue with a project. We've got to take the failure out of that where people yeah. think that they failed because they brought it to an end. And we've got to encourage the pragmatism. This isn't working and then take an honest look at it and say, okay, I've had this experience. What can I glean from it? What was it worth? Take it from someone who's made a lot of mistakes. I've learned way more from making mistakes than I ever learned from the times that I got it right. And the beauty of new media is stuff is persistent. Previously, if you made a book or a film or, you know, whatever, those items only exist as long as they're in print. But if you're using this new media technology for this stuff, as long as you maintain it, it exists. And you never know when some new pursuit that you're after could bring people to your old pursuit and all of a sudden it hits. You know, maybe the idea was was the right idea, but the wrong, wrong moment for it. So I think there's something to be said yeah. that <clears throat> it's nothing really can be a total failure unless you kill it entirely, unless you remove it. I think that a lot of people are asking the wrong questions creatively. And you see it when the number one question that most cartoonists are asked is, where do you get your ideas? And I and I think this, how do you end a project, is kind of somehow linked to that idea, where do you get your ideas? And we have to get out of that mindset that ideas are this finite thing that are hard to get. The problem is not getting ideas. The problem is the process by which we work the ideas Mm -hmm. and turn them into something. And that's the interesting question. Like, how did you learn to take your ideas and make them this? You know, that's the interesting question because everybody has ideas. Everybody, little kids play pretend, Mm -hmm. but there's a process there that is in between an idea and a finished project that is where the work goes in and where the idea, the raw idea is processed into something that's consumable and hopefully poignant. People ask me all the time, would would you ever stop drawing PVP? And I don't know the answer to that question. Right now, I don't want to. Right now, I can't. Even if I did want to, I couldn't. I mean, it's, it's generating the revenue I need to keep doing this for a living. But I could probably come up with something else that would generate enough revenue if I really wanted to. But that's where you hit that objective thing, right? 
you're kind of in the reverse scenario. Like PVP has an established fan base. It generates a, a certain amount of revenue for the company and it, it opens the company up to, uh, to allow it to do other things. It's almost like the reverse is the reverse of the question could also be true. You Ooh. could get to a place where the question isn't, when do I know to stop? The question is, how do I stop? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, and, and I had an idea last night for a third comic oh and I, <laughs> I, I took my phone out and I started plotting it out and writing it down and I won't touch it till late 2018, but ideas are not a problem. There's something that's wonderful about that too. Having this other thing that you don't have to work on right now that you can let grow and develop and, and you can, you can pull that uh, note out on your phone anytime between now and then and add to it and develop it and, and think about it. Who, who asked that question, Scott? Who did that come from? Ryan Friant. Well, thank you, Ryan. I've got a, a tweeter question mm. from Ben Davis who says, uh, how do you differentiate your creativeness from others, and what do you do to help gain confidence in that one thing you do? <laughs> That's Ooh. a beautiful question. Uh, now, there's two ways to take that. There's one way where you look at that and you say, oh, my God, I'm never going to be that good, uh, and therefore I'm awful. Or you take, a, uh, you take the Baskin-Robbins approach and you say, man, that uh, chocolate fudge is really great, and that uh, caramel toffee is fantastic. And I may be vanilla, but there's also something really nice about vanilla. And if I am vanilla, I'm going to be the best vanilla that I can possibly be. The French bean vanilla with the little black stuff floating around in it. I'm going to be that. I'm confused, but also hungry. <laughs> what? Okay, I'll, I'll boil it down to two sentences. It's easy to be jealous of other creative people and say that you're not that good, or it's more effective and more productive to appreciate them for what they are and to also know that you're your own kind of creative and that's good too. Does that make sense? Is this a 10,000 hours question? 10,000 Alex? 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours. <laughs> oh, wait. That Hi, I'm 10,000 Alex, and I'm here to talk to you about the future. <laughs> I think that you need to not worry so much about it. We are, most creative people are consumers of the media that we want to make. So if you're into comics, you really, you, you probably got to want to make comics because you read comics. And if you want to be a great nature photographer, it's probably because you grew up staring lovingly at Ansel Adams. There's a natural desire to emulate and there's also a human nature trap of comparison one of the first things that john kovalik who mentored me early in my career uh, he's a cartoonist who draws dork tower one of the first things he mentored me about was when i started selling comics through diamond was never to compare my diamond numbers to anyone else's Never do that. That's that's a trap that you fall into. Never say, because I had asked him, well, what are your diamond numbers? He's like, no, don't do that. We're not in the same place. And social media makes this even... Oh, it's so it's so much harder because you're comparing highlight reels. Yes. Right. You're, comp you're comparing someone's highlight reel, their best foot forward, their, right. uh, their filtered life to your reality. What you have to do is kind of disconnect 
Uh, Stephen King says, you write with the door closed and you edit with the door open. <laughs> and yeah, it's it's really what you have to do. And so, look, you're you're going to have your influences and you're going to have pictures in your mind of what you want to put down uh, and recreate. And you're going to hit that mark or miss that mark according to your your craft and your ability at the time. Remember, you're a fourth dimensional being, meaning that you're going to age as well. So 2017 you is not the same as 2020 you. You're going to change. You're going to grow. You're going to learn new things. So uh, don't worry so much about differentiating yourself from everyone else. Believe me, you're different from everybody else. Well, I kind of feel like that that answers the back half of the question, too, is like, you know, how do you differentiate your creativeness and what do you do to, to gain confidence in that? I think just doing it gains you the confidence because the more you do it, the better you get at it, whatever it is. Well, you're also going to give yourself the opportunity to make the, quote, happy accidents that have you go, oh, ooh, I like that. I'm going to do that again the next time I draw. Happy accidents. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where you differentiate, right? It's almost like you differentiate just by doing it. Everybody starts by emulating somebody. Everybody does. Of course. Mm-hmm. You've got to spend that time getting the basics down, and it's okay to kind of uh, copy off of other people and, and to use that as a starting off point. It's going to take you a long time for you to feel up to speed on the basics, and then you can start to develop what you can call your style. I think we nailed it. Ben, listen to that section again, take notes, and then do all of the things. Do it all. Do it all, Ben. Thank you, Ben. Does anybody Brad, else have a have, question? Do you have a question? If not, I've got one. Uh, go, I don't have any questions. Nobody's, Brad, uh, nobody, no, I mean, nobody's talking to me. I, <laughs> you, got it, you, got, you guys ready? I need this. you guys to take a sip of coffee and deep breath. You ready? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Michael Sweater asks... How do you guys feel about the Eisners maintaining tradition and going 29 years with only three black winners? Have there really only been three black people that have won Eisners? Yeah, I mean, like, like for all oh, of the categories, there's question. only been three uh, creators of color. According to Michael Sweater, there have only been three black winners. Oh, man, I'm so ready to jump into this. But I think there's been an explosion lately of demand for diverse work in comics. And the only way, the only, 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 only way for this to change is if publishers and editors and, and, and it's going away, right? As these gatekeepers go away, it's going to be different. But it's less important. It's going to be less important, and I think it's great that in web comics, independent comics, and independent film, and most of the indie scene, we're getting more diverse creators. But until it changes at the studio level, there's not going to be real cultural change. Well, let's get back to the question. Well, anyway, to answer this guy's question, to answer Michael's question about how do we feel about only 29 years and only three black winners. Not great. I'm, but I you also know? not I mean, surprised. It's systemic of a problem. I really no. am not surprised. And as someone who I've been in publishing roles for a long time, way before the current climate of like, let's really push these topics. Let's really bring light to this stuff. Publishers were actively trying to, to recruit minorities and non-male genders 
into writing and art. The problem was you've got a handful of female and you know and non-gender binary writers and artists who are good at their craft. Everybody's trying to work with them right now, uh, particularly with black artists. Can I interject something that fits right into this part of the conversation? So I'm on, yeah. mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter and I see cartoonists of color, COC database. That is their Twitter feed. And they've got a, Whoa. they've got a site called cartoonistsofcolor.com. And it's a database of, guess what? Cartoonists of color. And I found them because I had just clicked and, and linked because I thought it was such a neat idea. Uh, and, and it's clearly done by the same people. It's called QueerCartoonist.com, and it's a database of queer cartoonists. Hey, this is a cool resource. Thank yeah. you, whoever put this together. I, and I literally, just before I jumped on with you, I was uh, following and clicking and bookmarking. It was, it was uh, serendipity. This is a really cool resource. That's dope. All right. I'm going to be digging into this. This is good. This is good. Um. I'm the Eisner thing to me is unsurprising. I think it's going to be a couple more years before we see any kind of significant pl- split between, uh, although we're getting there with men and women, but between, you know, white and non-white in terms of winning awards. So yeah, not surprising. Mm. I think it'll change in the next few so years. So here's my question. This person said, uh, the, I used the Eisner Awards, which is obviously uh, mainstream comics that have a corporate backing. Do you think it's better for minorities, people of color, uh, the LGBTQ community, so on and so forth? Do they have a better ground in independent comics? Is it better in independent comics? Are, are, are they more successful? Are they have more entry? Or do you think uh, we're kidding ourselves? I say yes. There's no gatekeeper here. Go nuts. Make whatever you want. Yeah, and independent comics can be represented at the Eisners. Yeah. I mean, it's more difficult. There's a system set up. You know, as an institution, they're built a certain way. It's harder if you're publishing stuff on the web to get it in front of the judges. And you can submit it no, like anybody else. I don't else, mean but- for the judges. I mean, take the Eisners out of it. What I mean is, if you wanted to be successful in comics and you had a choice between uh, going into Marvel and DC comics or being an independent, would a person of color, for example, have uh, a better footing going towards independent comics as a career, not not for winning prizes. Those are incidental, but for building a career. Yeah, I still think No, this. I don't think so. You don't? You don't think so? No, I don't think that... Because here's the thing, though. I, I, You know I'm all pro-indie comics, and I think that the web is a great place to do it, but some people just want to draw Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Um, some people don't want to make their own comics they just want to draw comics and i think that it's very important for those cultural touchstones at the big two companies to be open to everyone Mm -hmm. but do you think it's easier i don't think it matters i think that i think it's hard no matter what if you try to break into comics i don't know i would like to think that as long as you draw really well or you write really well that marvel and dc would want you but I'm sure that there are stories and experiences that speak to the opposite, which would upset me. But I, I think that establishing yourself with an indie comic, because you don't have to break into indie comics. You just make them. You have to break into mainstream comics. Yeah. But I wish more people of color and people of different genders worked on 
the properties of the big two because I think that when that happens, you get really awesome stuff. I would encourage you to aim for what you want. And and there's I, I don't understand it, but I, there's a lot of people that just want to make comics for the big two. They still want to do that. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. There's not. I just think the opportunities are fewer for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely... You're playing a different game, right? I wouldn't know how to advise you either. Yeah. It's a, it's certainly more competitive. I remember talking to Mike Warinko about it, and he had an exclusive contract, and he was miserable. Hmm. Miserable. So I, I, I don't understand it. It's But, like, you see, you see people like Chris Samney, and at least according to his Twitter, which we've already established is... <laughs> no, he likes Not what he safe does. to. He loves what yeah. he does. Yeah, I mean, I think it it all depends on you as a creator and what you're and what you're into. All right, next next question. I got one. Do you got another one or no? Go ahead. I got a couple uh, from KVH on Twitter. Let me pick the good one here. Uh, <laughs> new res- new recommended sources of learning or relearning comics anatomy, perspective, inking, coloring, layout, etc. Oh, geez. I got one already. Because Go ahead. Well, I got one. Hire Brian Hurt to do all your breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> I'm grabbing this book off the shelf because as Scott, as you know, I've I've been rekindling my love of drawing lately. That's true. Because anybody can draw and you should just do it. I've really been enjoying a book called Figure Drawing, Design and Invention by Michael Hampton. I'm kind of an analytical guy, as you might know. And this book breaks down the body into all of its component parts. It's got really good imagery of all the muscle groups and all the bone groups and that kind of stuff. And what I really dig about is is he starts pretty simply with just gesture drawing. You know what I mean? Where you're just like, you're just kind of very quickly making curvy lines, right? And trying to get trying to get a general gesture there. And then you sort of build out of that. Then you get into wrapping lines and then you get into muscle groups and then you get into bone structure and the basic shapes, the geometric shapes of, you know, like cylinders and spheres and, and squares and triangles and breaking the body down in that way. That then when you start cartooning not humans, it becomes you just start seeing everything as a series of boxes. At least that's what happened with me. Yeah. I think that's a really good resource. It's called Figure Drawing by Michael Hampton. There is a book that I bought to help me with the one thing I have a really hard time with, perspective. It's called Perspective for Comic Book Artists, and it's by Portlandian David Chelsea. I just watched a documentary with him in it about 24-hour comic book day that takes place in Portland and has a couple guys from Helioscope in it. But he did a Scott McCloudian book uh, akin to the way that Understanding Comics is laid out, all about understanding perspective. Mm -hmm. And it's the first book that actually broke it down for me in ways that I could begin to digest. Well, I'm going to go a little bit different direction, although that looks like a great book and I'll probably end up getting it. But but two things. I, books are great. and to get Books are great. <laughs> but, uh, and that's all well and good. But the best way to learn is to start doing, start putting stuff together, start making mistakes and finding places where you can get feedback that you can respect. And more importantly, look back on your stuff from 
a couple of weeks ago, a couple of years ago, uh, because as you get better, uh, the mistakes you made uh, are going to pop out at you and you're going to learn a lot from just seeing how you used to do things and how you did do things now. Uh, perspective, I will, I'll tell you this, uh, my perspective jumped by leaps and bounds when I started using Manga Studio Pro, which is now called Clip, 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 Clip Studio. Studio. Yeah, yeah. I hate that name. But, but uh, Clip Studio really, just using their tools helped me to understand perspective better and, and to get it right the first time uh, in a lot of cases. So as much as I'd love to point you towards a book, what I'd much rather you do is to start doing some crappy comics. That's the only way you get to doing good comics. Start doing work that's, you know, it's going to be horrible. But the more you do, the better you're going to get at it. If you're paying attention, if you're getting feedback, stuff like that. I think it's important to note, too, that you don't need anything to do that. Yeah. When I started a few months ago, I took a page out of Brian Hurt's book and I took a three ring binder and some printer paper and I punched holes in the printer paper and just made a, you know, made a binder with blank sheets in it. And then I just got a shitty mechanical pencil and just started going. Yeah. And you know, now that I've been doing it for a while now, I'm interested in like, Oh, I wonder if I can get a cool pencil or maybe a sketchbook or whatever. But the tools I feel like have nothing to do with it. I intentionally didn't start. I, I have, um, you know, a tablet. I didn't start with a tablet. I wanted to draw on paper and I didn't start with buying a, you know, a $50 sketchbook and a, and a $10 pen. I just took what I had in the house and started doing it. And because those pages I'm drawn on them in order, I can do exactly what you said, Brad. And I can flip to page one and go. Exactly. And, and by the way, that's a people, people cringe. And it's a great feeling to see how horrible you used to be. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I can engender that in anybody. Yeah. What's that about with you fucking artists and always like, no, I don't want them to see the old stuff. Yeah. It's like, no, the old stuff. It's important. not about seeing it. It's because you fuckers keep wanting to print it. Yeah. <laughs> print it so everybody can see it. Yeah. No. And, and, and take it. I guess, I guess it's uh, ironic. The, the guy that wrote two how-to books on cartooning and co-wrote a third <laughs> is telling you, oh, I don't know. I'm all that cracked up about books, but <laughs> Go out and do, and do it. It's the question I get so many times from people uh, at comic conventions. It's like, nah, I don't know when I'm ready to start. You're, if you wait until you're ready to start, you're never going to start. You, you've got to you've got to start doing the crappy comics now, so you can get to the good stuff. No one starts out being good. I've got. I didn't. I've got one last question. Go ahead. Okay. And it's a doozer. Uh-huh. It's from Anthony Kutcher on the Twitters and Anthony asked, can you talk about how far you can control your characters once they become part of culture? Example, Matt Furry and Peppy the frog. Oh, that's an interesting question. Oh, it is because I'm, I'm going to dive right in because I'm a firm believer in, you don't always get to choose as a creator what people attach to. And you don't get to choose how people feel about your work. You can put con- you can put as much context behind it as you want, mm-hmm. but you cannot dictate how someone feels about your work. You can dictate what they do with your work, although that's getting harder to do mm. because of mm. because of new technology. You don't get to choose what I mean, Scott. You didn't you didn't start PvP like this is going to be my lifelong career thing. No, it was a temporary thing. Yeah, that took off. You didn't get to pick that. 
No, but I um, mean, it's different. I think that there, there's extreme examples like that and with Pepe where uh, imagine if a group of people took something that you made out of context as the poster child for something you are just terribly opposed to. I mean, that's, that's yeah, extreme. What happens when, when someone co-ops your, you know, your art or your style? Which we've seen happen multiple times now. That we doesn't bother that. me so much. Um, Burke Breathed's Bloom County being obviously influenced by Trudeau's Doonesbury. Well, I mean, back to the example of, of Pepe the Frog, I think an, a, another good correlative might be the, um, the This is Fine Dog. Oh, 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 did you did you see that on the on uh, speaking of Spider-Man Homecoming, did you see the sticker on the back of his uh laptop? Was it Dick I haven't Butt? seen the film yet. <laughs> there was a, a st- there was that dog. <gasps> really? What? Guys- was it the official was it the official sticker? All I know is I saw that and I'm like, "Oh my god, poor KC." <laughs> so if you're unfamiliar, Casey Green is a cartoonist who did a comic called The Gun Show for a long time. And there, there's one strip. If I remember the original, it's actually pretty sizable. Like, it's a big strip. It's a dog sitting in a burning room. And I think his first line is, this is fine. Yeah. And I, there's a lot more to the comic. I Honestly, I don't remember the whole comic. But I think at the end, the dog melts. Like, it gets real dark, real weird, real fast. <laughs> the panel of this is fine with the fire and the dog saying it has been adopted by internet culture and turned into everything. The character has been replaced with other characters. The meme of this is fine has been applied in a bunch of weird ways. He was clearly losing ownership of, of this character and of this idea to the greater world. that was permeating pop culture, right? Same thing. He said it's happened to him twice because he made dick butt too. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just sending God. Scott a, uh, a screen grab. It's, it's just oh, the, good. I'm trying to find it. I'm just, typing in Spider-Man Homecoming laptop, and I'm getting every commercial that Tom Holland did for <laughs> Dell to promote this movie. It's it's just the dog. Cut off, it's just a crop of the dog from like. Where did the, you send me the link? Where's uh, the to, link? To your phone. I couldn't do it through the thing because I I, oh I, I to turn. Don't start with me. <laughs> I wrote it down in a an envelope. You'll get it Tuesday. <laughs> <gasps> it is now, so oh that's got to be an official sticker i would hope he, so now this is what he did that i thought was really interesting so he saw this happen once to him with dick butt right who's this little character that is both a dick and a butt that's <laughs> i mean that's really all there is to it i feel like casey was able to take that character back really yeah instead of Going, I mean, you can only shut this stuff down so much. A, a big part of my job is sending C and Ds. It's mm-hmm. terrible. It takes a lot of time. And if you're a creator and you don't have assistance, you don't have help like somebody like me doing this for you. It can take all of your time. It can become terrible real fast, right? He took what was happening with this character and he figured out a way to start monetizing it. Uh, he made a plush of the dog with a coffee cup that says "This is fine." He made stickers. I'll bet you that's one of his official stickers. He did little tokens that you can hand out to people, little wooden tokens. Like he he just doubled down on it. Mm-hmm. He kind of went, you know what? I can't stop it. So I'm just going to jump into the flow <laughs> of, of this 
crazy wave and ride it out. That's what he should have done in the first place. Well, honestly. but it's it, it's hard, right? Because that's not our first reaction. So that's not even my initial advice to most people on stuff. Like if your thing is getting used in a in a way in which you had not intended, my initial advice to ninety nine percent of people is to send a C and D, shut it down. Mm-hmm. If they're not willing to do it, escalate. Ninety nine percent of people that I give that advice to that send the stuff out. And then 99% of the people that receive that just stop because either they didn't know the rules or they were, you know, they weren't, they were unaware. I think the advantage that Casey had with this dog is that it wasn't being co-opted by an organization like what happened with Pepe. I actually feel like the way that, uh, that Matt handled Pepe was the, was the way to go. He did. He just, he killed the character mm-hmm. in, in the strip. Yeah. The character die. I mean, Matt had been on, late night talk shows and it had been in the media and had just been all over the place in this. And it was, he was still being co-opted. His character was still being co-opted. And even to this day is still being co-opted. I think it, at that point he had unintentionally lost control of that character and there's just nothing you can do. Um, and I hate to say that because I don't know what I would have advised. Yeah. What can you say? Well, it, it would, it's different if, you know, with the this is fine dog, there were things that could be done. It was it was memeing a lot. You can take advantage of that. With Pepe, it's like if you don't agree with the meme, that's more difficult. And there was no single organization doing it. There's no way to shut it down. It was a group of individuals. You just make a ton of official merchandise, which is essentially what he did, right? Mm-hmm. You just make a ton of official merchandise. Um, I don't know if that would work with Pepe. I think you risk if you do that, you risk the people. Oh, I don't mean Pepe. I meant that this is fine. Dog. Yeah, I mean that's definitely what happened. I think I think Pepe is such a such a a, a individual case. I because I honestly can't think of a lot of good examples of that happening. Certainly not with comics. I know there's been. There's been a lot of things co-opted that people didn't necessarily want co-opted. And now I'm having a hell of a time thinking of an example. <laughs> I really can't. Straub encountered it, right? I mean, Candle Cove mm. ended up being this thing that that he started to kind of lose ownership of, right? Yeah. As a creepypasta? I don't remember the details of that. Well, I mean, the hardest part with creepypasta is you, it's, you've already kind of lost ownership of it by putting it out there anyway. In that, in the context of that site, and then the the trick with what he was doing was that what it was. Do you mean? Uh, what does that mean? The whole trope of what he was doing was posting and being like, "Don't you remember this one show?" And then convincing a bunch of other people they remembered it too. <clears throat> I guess I don't understand. What do you mean? Like it was it was more than just like a story posted. It was a it was an it was like an ARG. It was like an oh, experience. I thought it was a short story he posted on his website that got stolen. I. I think if it was a short story that he posted, then it became this other thing. Is creepypasta like the, uh, like you post, it's like a fan fiction thing? Or like original story horror. It's it's like uh, short fiction. Well, and if he posted it on a fan fiction site, yes. <laughs> no, wonder no it's not. I, well, I mean, I don't know the terms of service and I don't remember the whole story. The, the bottom line is, the bottom line is, the cool thing about Candle Cove is the premise is, the premise of the story is that a group of kids from one town remember a TV show that never really existed. And what does that mean? And the way it was presented was not as a short story with that premise, but as someone fictional on the internet asking, does anyone else remember this show? (laughs) 
and so some people, a la the 1930s War of the Worlds broadcast, believed it. Right. Which gave it power, but also kind of took away a little bit of Chris's ability to maintain it as a as an intellectual property. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is you're going to get people all the time that email you or contact you and say uh, about your fictional character that they wouldn't act that way. And you can get pissy about it if you want to, or you can get excited about it because it means people are so invested in your work that they are they care so much they're about hearing that these characters' voices yeah. in their head. And, you know, up at that point, it's up to you, right? Like, it's up to you to decide what you want to do with that. Um, because I've done it both ways, right? Where people have come to me and said, well, they, this person wouldn't do that, and I don't like that. And I say, I'm drawing the line in the sand here. This is who this character is, and that's how I'm going to write them. Where in other times, people have written us and said... I mean, Darby is a great example in Table Titans. We were we had planned for him to be a hipster <laughs> douche, and oh yeah, he was a throwaway character. And he was going to exist just a little. Yeah, he was going to exist just to kind of upset the Titans. And it was like, oh, this is me. I'm the new player. I'm so glad you put this yeah. character in there. And we're like, hmm, let's run with it. So you know, both are valid ways of doing it. But you're never going to avoid people feeling that they have ownership of. Uh, an entitlement to the things that you create. Especially the stuff we're doing on through new media yeah. online. Yeah. People are, people, yeah. I don't know what it is. And this is such a weird dichotomy to me, but I feel like when people buy something, when they purchase a book or they buy a CD or whatever, for whatever reason, they don't feel the same level of ownership as if they get it for free online. <laughs> that, that's weird, isn't it? I don't know that that's the case, but but I mean, but think about it. Where do where do these crazy ownership things always happen? They always seem to happen with. It's because we're accessible. It's because it's visible. But you don't think J.K. Rowling gets <laughs> shit? <laughs> I'm Corey Cassoni, and on behalf of myself and my co-hosts Brad Geiger and Scott Kurtz, thank you so much for joining us this week on Surviving Creativity. If you've got a question for us and you'd like to get on the next listener question episode, go ahead and tweet at us at Surviving Show or use the hashtag Surviving Creativity. If you like what you heard, head on over to patreon.com forward slash Surviving Creativity and consider becoming a patron. Thank you so much for joining us and we'll see you next week on Surviving Creativity. <laughs>